Alexandra Lamarche, thank you very much for taking my call and welcome to Radio Canada International. Thank you so much for having me. Now, you are the author of a report by Refugees International. It's called Mali's Humanitarian Crisis, Over-Militarized and Overshadowed. Tell me about the origins of this crisis. Yeah, Mali has sort of been the perpetual scene of conflict and displacement for now eight years, but also predating that. Um, what we see is is sort of decades and decades of marginalization of communities outside of the capital city of Bamako, um, which came to a head in two, early 2012 um, when tensions of these within these marginalized groups in the north. Um, led to creation of rebel groups that ended up um, taking over swaths of land in the north with the help of uh, jihadi organizations and declaring an independent state in the north. And while that happened, um, tensions grew in the capital city where communities and the military was very frustrated with the government's inaction or inability to deal with this crisis in the north, um, which led to a coup. Um, So we saw the overthrowing of the president at the time. So it quickly spiraled into sort of widespread chaos from Mali's north all the way down to Bamako. Um, The French military then intervened, um, which helped restore some semblance of peace um, and and restore state authority, at least in the city of Bamako. But eight years later, we're still seeing violence increase. We're still seeing, you know, the the military, whether it be the French um, response or now the UN peacekeeping response or the regional G5 Sahel, which is comprised of um, neighboring countries, really struggle to make security gains and protect um, the civilian population. You talked about, um, you mentioned the... uh involvement of the G5 Sahel, the neighboring Sahel countries. Uh, can you talk about how has this conflict affected the uh, the general uh, Sahel region and in the neighboring countries? Yeah, I think it's important to note that whatever happens in Mali <laughs> happens elsewhere as well. Um, what we've seen is is the crisis in Mali spill over into um, western Niger and now into Burkina Faso, which for people who have watched Burkina Faso, um, it's, it's quite shocking for the, the, the international community. It's always been seen as sort of a beacon of stability. Um, but in 2014, there was a revolution in Burkina Faso, which created a power vacuum, which allowed for armed groups that were in Mali to come into Burkina, um, spreading violence, spreading their ideologies, but also um, creating a response. So there's a lot of armed groups that came to fruition in northern Burkina Faso as a response to that violence in, in sort of self-defense groups, but also just groups who took advantage of that to engage in that same criminality, to engage in the same ideological fight. So now we're seeing tensions between armed groups, we're seeing tensions between religious communities, we're seeing tensions between ethnic communities spanning from northern Mali into central Mali, into southern Mali, into Burkina Faso, into western Niger. Um, and what that means regionally is is extremely you know, massive displacement, massive humanitarian need, um, and, and increasing civilian casualties, unfortunately. Um, also has an effect on 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 migration into Europe, which is obviously a concern for Europe and and a, and a big part of why the French military is so heavily involved. What has been the uh, kind of the response of the international community, both uh, like the uh, you talked about the French, the former colonial masters, the the regional players, uh, but also uh, you know people in New York, uh, the United Nations. Uh, how has this crisis played out there? Um, it's different on different fronts, I would say. 
unfortunately, the majority of um, security and humanitarian crises across sub-Saharan Africa rarely get the attention that they really deserve, rarely get the humanitarian funding that they deserve. Um, So we're seeing um, a regional response and a regional attempt. France is obviously heavily involved and has a a massive military operation with Operation Barkhane, which is massively funded. but we're not seeing much in terms of gain. But Mali is in an interesting situation where everyone is paying attention to the security dynamics. Everyone is paying attention to the armed groups. Everyone is paying attention to the military interventions, whether they be counterterrorism, whether they be stabilization, such as the UN peacekeeping mission. Um, however, we're we're barely getting any attention on the humanitarian side. You know, it's important to note that there are 3.2 million Malians in need of assistance. Um, numbers of IDPs have only increased dramatically. They were about 38,000 two years ago, and we're now looking at 200,000. So there's there's a resurgence in violence. There's a resurgence in massive displacement, and people are on the move regionally, um, and, and it's just not getting that attention as everyone sort of pays attention and, and heavily funds the military response, whether it be through the G5 Sahel, whether it be the French, whether it be the peacekeeping mission. Now, your report presents some uh, kind of interesting comparative statistics on um, you know, the amounts that are being spent on the military side of it versus the amounts that are sp- being spent on humanitarian aid. Can you talk about that? Yeah, um, I mean, there's a there's a great graph in the report. Please look at it. Um, there is a, a massive discrepancy. What we're seeing is that the military response, um, including the G5 the Hell, including MINUSMA, which is the peacekeeping mission, including the French um, operation, gets about two billion dollars a year. And what we're seeing is that there only 160 million has been provided for the humanitarian funding, which is about 50% of what it what it needs for the year. Obviously, we're coming to the end of the year, and there will be an, a new appeal with a new figure as to what they require for 2020. Um, and we're hoping to get more international engagement on the humanitarian side. We need to be dealing with these human you know, consequences to the conflict. We need to be dealing with this widespread marginalization and the lack of access to basic services, which is only going to further breed marginalization, which could obviously further fuel conflict and tension and, and comp- competition over scarce resources. Um, but it's extremely disheartening to see how much is being spent on the military side with little success, I would say. You know, $2 billion a year is massive compared to the $324 million that's requested for the humanitarian side that is that is barely getting the attention and funding that it needs. Hmm. But, uh, you know, some people would say you, uh, you're in a catch-22 situation here because you cannot uh, spend on humanitarian side if there is no security. You're not going to be able to deploy uh, government resources. You you won't even be able to deploy uh, humanitarian agencies if the the situation is not secured. So h- how do you square that circle? It's an excellent question, and I think it's it's it, everything needs to be done in parallel. I'm not here to say that the, that the you know that the security aspect is is wrong or not doing its job. I think that it's doing its best in a very very vast country that is extremely, extremely dangerous, especially for the peacekeeping side. I mean, this is the deadliest peacekeeping mission um, for the UN. Um, There's been 200 peacekeepers that have lost their lives as a result of this conflict. Um, It is obviously extremely difficult. I think that how 
how there's a, a bit of a difference in how humanitarian organizations operate in insecure contexts, how they can gain access, which can be done even in the most insecure of environments. Um, I definitely think that more needs to be done on the security agenda, but everything needs to be done in tandem. We need to be further funding humanitarian organizations to give them the tools to operate in such a, you know, very, very volatile context. Um, to, to wait for it to be secure to provide humanitarian funding only means that people will go without basic services and, and more people will unfortunately pay the pay the price, whether they you know, are just lacking food or access to livelihoods, but, uh, you know, there's more people will die, unfortunately, and we, and we can't sort of have that responsibility lying on our hands. We need to be doing more. Who needs to be doing more? Is it the Malian government? Is it the international community? Uh, who? I would say everyone. The Malian government definitely is not stepping up to the plate. Um, it There was a peace deal in 2015, which it has failed to implement most of its promises, um, it fails to um, properly criticize armed groups that sign the accord when they don't adhere to it. Um, it's It's been a very, very disappointing implementation of this peace deal, if we can even call it an implementation. Um, and I need, I think that international governments and donor institutions like the World Bank um, need to sort of be holding the government accountable, and it needs to be making a lot of its coordination with the government um, conditional on the government being more transparent, being less corrupt, um, creating actual implementable plans for this for this peace deal. Um, so I think the responsibility lies with everyone. I think the French need to be playing a bigger role in, in how they hold the Malian government accountable for its pretty significant coordination and cooperation with the, the authorities there. On the humanitarian side, yes, of course, the Malian government has a responsibility to do a lot more to provide basic services and basic protection for its population. Um, and I think that also international donors need to be playing a bigger role. The fact that this humanitarian response for 2019 was only 50% funded is unfortunately not unusual on the African continent, but it doesn't make it acceptable. And I think we need to be, we need to be doing more because this has a massive regional effect. And we're seeing that now because we haven't been able to deal with Mali. We're now dealing with, you know, spillover from that conflict in Burkina and in Niger. Um, and we need to, we need to come up with a better plan to, to compel the Malian government to do more and to compel ourselves to do more. Your your report also is uh, points to the need to develop better strategies in uh, what's called the protection strategy, the internally displaced people strategy, localized access strategy. Can you talk to me about what you see is wrong or lacking in these uh, areas? Yeah, I would start by saying that I think that um, humanitarian organizations in Mali are are scrappy and being as resourceful as they can, given the lack of un, like the lack of funding um, and the lack of access. Um, however, I think that we, as a as a humanitarian community, we have a responsibility to do better, and I think part of that comes with having sort of a countrywide. Um, set of strategies for certain issues. This is obviously an internally displaced people um, crisis. There are rapidly increasing numbers of people who are displaced within Mali's borders. We're also seeing an, a, a rapid increase of people coming into the capital city of Bamako and the city of Segu, which is just um, sort of um, northeast of Bamako. Um, and as we see people come into urban centers, we need to have a plan 
created and agreed upon with all humanitarian organizations, whether they be UN organizations or agencies, or whether they be non-governmental agencies and organizations, um, such as like the Norwegian Refugee Council, but also local organizations who are doing their best to respond to the needs of their fellow Malians. Um, we need to strategize. We need to come up with a plan to be as efficient as we can. That also spills over to issues of protection. Um, protection you know, it's a very, very broad term in a humanitarian sense, but we need to sort of figure out how we can mobilize efforts and funds and identify what the key risks are. We need to have better um, referral pathways in, in, in place, right? If a person comes to you and has been the, the, the victim of, of gender-based violence, we need to have systems in place to respond to that person and give them the protection that they need and give them the assistance that they need. So that involves things like psychosocial assistance, um, physical protection. Um, it could be health care. So the, a lot of that is lacking in Mali, given the fact that this is years and years of the crisis being underfunded. Um, when it comes to access strategies, um, again, I think that, that humanitarians are doing the best they can. This is obviously a very, very difficult situation, but humanitarians have the possibility to negotiate access in areas where sometimes the military is not welcome because they are seen as part of the conflict, whether it be the peacekeepers, the French the Malian forces or the regional G5, but but humanitarians operate within the confines of humanitarian principles, which call for all aid to be neutral and independent. We're not here to take sides. And I think that organizations have the possibility to better negotiate access to, to reach populations that are controlled by armed groups, but still require basic assistance, right? These people are not choosing to be under the control of, of these organizations. Um, they still need to have their basic needs met, and, and, and humanitarians have the possibility to access them through through more tailored, bespoke negotiations at each sort of individual level of, of, of a region or a village. Hmm. This brings me to my next kind of uh, question and a, and a chapter in your report about uh, the inadequate humanitarian civil military coordination. Uh, you are quite critical in the report about the way um, some uh, peacekeeping contingents are using uh, humanitarian aid to kind of shore up their short-term positions in communities. Uh, how do you see the role between aid agencies and the various you know, security military uh, organizations that are present there, either as part of UN, uh, the uh, the G5 Sahel group, or others, uh, working out. I think that um, on the military side, these groups are are faced with the reality that they've been there since sort of as early as 2013, and have not successfully made any real traction other than restoring state influence and some semblance of peace in Bamako. Um, that means that there's a, a, a pretty significant level of dissatisfaction among the local population, which which unfortunately means that these these armed groups or these, um, sorry, not these armed groups, these armed factions such as the G5, such as the Barkhane French operation as MINUSMA, as the FAMA, which is the, the Force Armée Malienne, um, they're not welcome, and I think that they are faced with, with significant issues. And in the past, they have dealt with that um, lack of trust by providing um, traditional, what is traditionally seen as humanitarian aid. And I'm not to say that that, that, that is, 
that is not uncommon and it is not unnecessary. I think that that is pretty vital in building that trust and maintaining that trust and helping communities where sometimes or humanitarian organizations genuinely are not able to get in. And, and if, you know, if peacekeepers have the opportunity to respond, they should and they can. I think that what's necessary is to make sure that that is properly coordinated through CivMil um, coordination and cooperation between the peacekeepers and humanitarian organizations and UN humanitarian agencies. And that just means making sure that, you know, a peacekeeper, a peacekeeping contingent won't respond to something in an area at, at the same time as a humanitarian organization. We need to make sure that there's no, you know, that both are not intervening in the same village on the same day, because that means that people won't necessarily understand that there is a difference between the UN peacekeepers and UN agencies and humanitarian agencies, because because peacekeepers are seen as part of the conflict, they are often targeted by armed groups, and we don't want that to happen to humanitarian organizations. We obviously don't want it to happen to peacekeepers either, but we need to have a clear differentiation between what is humanitarian aid and what is um, military support. So, but then how do you provide security to these, uh, you know, humanitarian workers who are going into these villages uh, if you don't have armed escorts with them? And how do you help um, the locals to differentiate what you called between the UN blue and the UN black? Mm -hmm. um, I think it's very important to note that humanitarian organizations, um, non-governmental humanitarian organizations, will never use military escorts. It is against humanitarian principles to do that. Um, as humanitarian organizations will tell you, they gain a lot more access by not being associated with a military faction. So they gain more access and acceptance within the population by not using military escorts. That doesn't mean that the UN system doesn't. So the UN system sort of operates in a slightly different way where they use UN military escorts. So things like the WFP or UNHCR will use military escorts from UN contingents. Um, but otherwise, humanitarian organizations are going in um, following you know, a series of negotiations with, a, 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 with regional leaders uh, or local leaders or local notable people to make sure that they have safe passage into this area. Um, so that's, that's an important distinction to make. Um, humanitarians are going in without any escorts, and, and that is vital, and we need to ensure that that keeps happening. And that's why that differentiation between humanitarian and UN peacekeeping is really, really vital, because that sort of conflates and, and makes those, those very, very painstaking negotiations futile and moot in the end. Um, and how we sort of share that message to, to the community is explaining, you know, who is what? So a, a, a peacekeeping contingent has to make it clear that they are not affiliated with NGOs, that they are not responding in the same way that a humanitarian organization does. And that's and it's the same responsibility for humanitarian organizations to come in and talk about their principles and explaining that they will not use military escorts. They are not affiliated with the military. They are not taking sides within this conflict. And that actually allows humanitarian organizations to guarantee their passage into these areas. Hmm. What do you hope to achieve with this report? 
I guess what I hope to achieve is um, shining light on on the the human consequences of this conflict. We're, we're we're looking at it through a geopolitical lens, and people find it fascinating and intriguing. But these are people's lives that we're talking about here, right? Like 3.2 million people in need is 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 a pretty significant figure. We're also seeing the number of internally displaced people skyrocket. When people are on the move, they're not getting the services that they need. We need to be providing for them. So my main goal is to make sure that, that the international community is paying attention to that aspect of it. We can we can look at the military side, we can look at the security side and counterterrorism. We have to do humanitarian work in parallel with those efforts. And I hope that my report offers recommendations on how that humanitarian side can be as effective and efficient as it can um, and, and hopefully garner more interest and more funding. But regardless, I think that there's ways to make it more efficient. Now, you are a former uh, official with, with the Canadian government. How do you want Canada and other, um, you know, Western countries, other countries to respond to this? First of all, I, say, I don't know if I'm an official. I did work <laughs> in certain positions um, in Canadian immigration and at StatsCan um, in, in my younger days. Um, I think that as a Canadian, what I would say is that Canada has a responsibility to 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 do a better job. Um, humanitarian funding levels are pretty pretty low from Canada, and I think that with this was a very, very contentious issue because Canada had announced that they were going to deploy um, a significant number of peacekeepers and that, you know, Canada was back and Justin Trudeau made all these promises with regards to Canada's engagement in peacekeeping globally, and he hasn't delivered on them. What we're seeing is, is Canada was there for just short of a year, um, and it was the biggest contribution in years from Canada, and that's not It, that's, it, it is significant, but it wasn't enough. And Canada left, you know, faster than it should have and didn't give enough. It, they, they, you know, provided aircraft support, which was absolutely necessary. And I think that the, that, that contribution was even criticized because Mali needs more than just military help. And, and yes, it did put Canadian lives at risk because that we're not, like globally, we're no longer in a climate of peacekeeping. We're in a climate of peacemaking. And Mali is an extremely, extremely dangerous context for peacekeepers. Um, but I think Canada should have been been more engaged and not to say that we're not still there. When I was there, you still saw RCMP officers and police officers doing doing great work. But we need to maintain that. We're one of the rare countries globally that has you know, armed forces and police officers who are fluent in French. We have a significant contribution to make in terms of the women in, in those roles, and we're not making it. We have an opportunity to do better, and we're just not doing it. Tell me about your time in Mali. Um, what's uh, one human story that uh, kind of you carry with you or maybe illustrates uh, the, the wider conflict or the situation there for you? I guess my, my human story doesn't necessarily... It's not about the conflict. It's just about the fact that people people's lives go on within these atrocities, right? And we need we need to there's there's some sort of credit that we need to give to these people who still manage to go on and still be optimistic and still. I mean, Malians have a thriving musical community. It's absolutely fascinating, and the lengths that they've had to go to to maintain that part of their culture under jihadi control in certain areas is absolutely fascinating. Their commitment to their culture, their commitment to their unique and their commitment to peace is is absolutely fascinating right you meet communities that that there's there's tensions
tensions between them, but they're trying very, very hard to cohabitate to overcome these challenges to continue to share in their, you know, in their cultural fibers that that make Mali so special. That to me is 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 a really touching experience. I think no matter where I go in my work, people are always asking me, you know, you know, is it really, really difficult? And part of it is difficult, but I'm constantly humbled and, and awestruck by people's resilience and people's willingness to, to overcome and overlook, you know, years and years of, of tension and years and years of violence for the greater good to provide for their families, to provide for their neighbors. Um, there's something really, really beautiful about meeting these people and seeing how they, they still want to, you know, respect and, and, and cohabitate. Alexandra Lamarche, thank you very much for taking the time to speak with me. Thank you so much for having me.